Hello, Dominic. Hello, Europe. Hello, world. This is Katie in Paris. Can you hear that, Dominic? No. Exactly. Silence. It's Paris in August. It's the best. There is no one here. I'm completely on my own until everyone comes back from the holidays next week. And I'm joined, as always, by the aforementioned Mr. Dominic Kramer in Amsterdam. No, in London. Oh, yeah, sorry. Hence why you can hear the big double-decker buses passing my parents' house. Do they live at a bus stop? Not at a bus stop, but on a bus route. And our house does shake every time a bus passes it. Nice. Yeah, well, I hope it makes up for the silent and tranquil Paris. It is really dead here. I've had a very like uneventful week. There have been no rotten potatoes in the basement, I can happily report. Nothing at all. It has been wonderful. What have you been up to? Uh, not much. I've just been learning my score, actually, because I'm moving to Berlin to start a new really difficult opera next week. Uh, yeah. So I've had my head buried in said score and trying to cram French words into my head. Oh, it's in French. What French words have you been learning? Uh, oh, I talk a lot about evil twins. What do you? Yeah. Les jumeaux. Jumeaux, très bien. And now I'm embarrassed. That's <laughs> very good. Because I said a French word. Um, so you've had a quite busy week, it seems. It's been a busy week in Europe in general. There were about nine contenders for bad week this week, it felt like. So much stuff going on. There was a massive fire outside Berlin. Uh, General Franco's body is getting dug up. Volkswagen is involved in yet another scandal. It's just been a lot of stuff happening, really. But uh, probably the biggest news of the past week, and it's it's pretty good news, it's what we're going to be mainly talking about this week, is that Greece has finished its bailout. And uh, if, like me, you were like not really sure what that means or why it matters, then we have exactly the person that you need to hear from. Nick Malkoutsis, he is the editor of basically the best website about the Greek crisis out there. It's called Macropolis, and we're going to be giving him a ring in Athens. And then we're going to be speaking to Fabrice Potier, who is Chief Strategic Officer at Rasmus and Global, the very serious sounding international political consultancy firm. But I promise we're not going to be talking to him about uh, international political consultancy. Um, we're going to be speaking to him because he decided to use his precious holiday days to cycle the Camino de Santiago on a bit of a European soul-searching trip. Doesn't sound like much of a holiday to me, but I'm very interested to speak to him. He is a Frenchman with incredible hair. It's not really relevant, but I've piqued your interest now, so do listen up for that. That is coming up, but first, it is... Now, listeners, Katie mentioned that there were lots of candidates for Bad Week this week, and it's true, we considered doing Bad Week Worst Week, but um, somehow, Katie's decided to take a controversial topic as Good Week. Fire away. Hear me out. I've taken slight liberties with Good Week this week. It's not really good news at all. It has been a good week for the measles virus. Yay. Yay. It has been having a field day across Europe. There have been a record number of cases of measles this year. 41,000 people across the continent infected, which is nearly double what we had last year. And we're only eight months in. And of course, uh, even though the vast majority of people do recover from measles, it can be fatal. And 37 people are known to have died of measles around the continent so far in 2018. 
Why is this happening? Very simple reason, according to the health authorities, parents deciding not to get their kids vaccinated. I was actually pretty shocked to hear some of the vaccination rates. France, for example, where I live, has a lower vaccination rate than Burundi or Rwanda. Did you know that? No, that's awful. Well... It's awful that they have low rates in Burundi and Rwanda as well. Well, they don't. They have like 95%, which oh. is enough to stop it from spreading. But 90%, which is what France has, not quite enough. So why would parents not get their kids vaccinated against measles? Well, more than half of the cases uh, this year have been in Ukraine, which have had some shortages of the vaccine in recent years because of the war. But uh, if you hear what health professionals are saying, it's we're mostly talking about kids that were babies way before the war. So at the heart of this, it's nothing to do with shortages of the vaccine. It's really just very deep mistrust of the vaccines, which is still a major problem in Ukraine, um, even though they are trying to change that with education campaigns. What we're really dealing with right now is a kind of hangover from the 90s when there was this massive scare campaign around the MMR vaccine, this idea that it might cause autism, which is, of course, wrong, completely wrong. Thank you, Andrew Wakefield. Yeah, thanks a lot. What good you've done here. This is, if you don't know, the British doctor who published a report in The Lancet, the medical journal, about uh, about 15 years ago, I think, or maybe longer, no. Late 90s, I think it was. In the late 90s, and it was research suggesting that uh, vaccines were connected to autism in children, and it's been completely disproven, and he used a sample of, like I think it was about 13 children for his paper, which is completely ridiculous. Exactly. So a lot of what we're dealing with now is the result of parents in that first wave after the original health scare deciding not to get their kids vaccinated. But the really scary thing is that this whole anti-vaxxer thing is kind of back with a vengeance in Europe and, and of course on the other side of the pond obviously, particularly in Italy and I think this is really really chilling. Under the new populist government they've just voted through legislation which gets rid of mandatory vaccinations for kids before they start school, which is uh, one small step for parental freedom and a massive step for stupid I saw that there was like a report this week that there's been Russian disinformation spread about vaccinations as well across Europe. Why would they take that as a topic? I don't understand it. I don't know. I guess it's just kind of adding to general chaos. I guess that's in their interest. Breaking down the international world order, killing people like that's seems pretty extreme. It's pretty rubbish, really. I shouldn't be calling it good week. It's incredibly frustrating because we have really amazing resources in Europe for vaccinating people and we should have wiped it out here by now. But did you know there's been an anti-vaccine campaign uh, like since vaccines were around hundreds of years ago? No, I didn't. Maybe not hundreds of years ago. Yeah, I saw a BBC explainer about it the other day that um, I haven't written any notes about this, so I don't really know. But there was like art, old art that showed suspicions about vaccination. So, yeah, this is really happy news. Fortunately, the actual bad week is kind of fun. (laughs) What have we done here? We're going to be confusing everyone. It has been a bad week for a man who fell 2.5 metres into a piece of art by the British sculptor Anish Kapoor. I say fun, but yeah, a man did get injured. Um, The piece of art in question is The Descent into Limbo, a piece which the 60-year-old Italian man mistook as an optical illusion, but is in fact a hole (laughs) painted with black pigment to make it impossible to see how deep it is. 
So he thought it was like a flat painted surface made to look like a hole. Yeah. And to be fair to him, Anish Kapoor was playing with that uh, ambiguity of whether it was indeed a hole or whether it was an optical illusion. And the pigment is so dark that you really can't see in the way it's lit. But I hope he's doing okay. According to the art newspaper, he was ready to return home within a few days. So it can't have been too serious. The gallery did temporarily close to improve safety, but there had already been warning signs around the room and various stewards positioned to try and stop this happening. It's a sad tale, and through injuring himself, the man also did rather break the spell of the piece, which was playing with this ambiguity. So, yeah, thanks for spoiling the art. To be fair, if you look at the pictures of it, it is really incredibly black. Anish Kapoor famously has the rights to use this really, really black substance, right? Vanta Black, I think it's called? Yeah. He bought the exclusive rights to use it, which is very controversial. I don't know if it's actually if he actually used it in this work, but it is really very black and flat looking. So I can kind of see why he fell in. It is kind of funny, though. <laughs> I feel like there's a metaphor in there somewhere for the state of Europe right now. Cast your minds back, back before the migrant crisis, back before Brexit. The main crisis that looked like it was going to tear Europe apart about five, eight, ten years ago was Greece. This little country in the southeast corner of Europe was on the edge of bankruptcy. Most countries in Europe got hit by the financial crisis, but Greece was just in catastrophic amounts of debt. And as a result, the EU and IMF agreed to bail the country out, lend it something like 300 billion euros. But in exchange, it had to bring in these really, really tough austerity measures, massively cut down on public spending and raise people's taxes, which has had a huge impact on the way that Greeks have lived their lives for the last decade or so. So the emergency loan package that has just expired was a three-year 61.9 billion euro package. But is there anything to celebrate? Maybe, maybe not. This week we are speaking to a man who really knows about the nuances and intricacies of Greek life and Greek politics. Nick Malkoutsis is the editor and founder of Macropolis, an independent analysis service that publishes daily reports on developments in Greece. So we thought Nick would be the perfect person to find out really what's been going on because I personally haven't been following this story as closely as I would have liked to. So let's speak to Nick. Nick, I wanted to ask you about the human impact of the crisis, because Greeks have had to put up with years and years of tax rises, cuts to public services to pay for all this amazing levels of debt. What kind of an impact has that had on ordinary people's lives? A lot of times I had foreign colleagues or friends from abroad coming over, walking around Athens, seeing people sitting in cafes and so on, saying, where's the crisis? The reality is that it wasn't always in visible places. Sure, you would see an increase in homelessness and people queuing up perhaps at soup kitchens and buildings looking run down and pavements and uh, roads not being maintained properly. But a lot of this crisis was in places where it wouldn't be immediately visible. So, for instance, in public hospitals. You know, if you go to a state hospital, you have to bring bed sheets with you, you have to bring gauzes with you, you have to bring toilet paper with you, all these things because the hospital can't provide them. You know, around a million jobs were lost in a country that has a workforce of around four million people. That had a huge impact. It meant people moving back in with their parents and relying on their parents' pensions in order to survive. It meant families having to support in each other. And incidentally, this is one of the reasons that the crisis wasn't always visible. It's because in Greece, like a lot of Southern European countries, the family is, you know, really 
strong part of the social structure, and there was this safety net. Tens of thousands of young Greeks left. You know, whenever I, I, I go to London and I, I walk into a cafe or a restaurant, there's a good chance I'll come across a young person who's left in order to go and work there. We saw a huge increase in uh, clinical depression, you know, and that psychological mental pressure of not only the economic crisis, but this constant uncertainty that we lived through for a large part of the last eight years, you know, the speculation about Grexit, the speculation about what measures would come next, the speculation about whether more people would be fired, if pensions would be reduced, taxes would go up. All this had a huge toll on people, and I think it's not always one that is evident to people either visiting or, or living outside of Greece. I was wondering what the sentiment is towards Europe. We're interested in exploring European identity in this podcast, and I imagine for much of the Greek public, the last few years have been quite a difficult time with their relationship with Europe. It's absolutely right. One of the narratives that developed early on in the crisis was that the government at the time, which was a centre-left government, had essentially sold out the country, sold it down the river, allowed the IMF to come in when it wasn't necessary, and the bailout was necessary in order for foreign powers, European powers, to come in and exploit Greece, to grab its assets at a cheap price, to dictate economic policy, to pick up property on the cheap and so on and so forth, uh, and to essentially make Greece a guinea pig for uh, austerity. There's still a sizable chunk of the population that believe Greece was exploited over the last few years, that the, the bailouts were to the benefit of the European lenders and not Greece. When the decision to join the EU was made in the early 80s, it was very much about saying, OK, we're anchoring the country within Europe. This is where we belong. Our culture, our history going back to ancient Greece is about democracy, about civilization. We have given birth to this and we need to be part of it. So throughout the course of the crisis, there was real pressure on public opinion because of the austerity measures, you know, unemployment going up to 25 percent, a quarter of the economy disappearing. There was real pressure on people in terms of their faith in, in the European project. But despite that pressure, it has survived. Greeks trust the EU and the, the euro more than they do their own politicians, their own institutions. I'm kind of interested in the some of the national, quite ugly national stereotypes that came out over the course of the last eight years, like partly towards Greek people. There was a stereotype of the Greeks as like lazy tax evaders, which was maybe part of the story of why they insisted on such tough austerity measures in the first place. Yeah. And on the other hand, this uh, stereotype of the Germans in particular as like, you know, being to blame for all this tough austerity and the Germans as being mean tightwads, basically. How much of that is, is still around? For me, it was one of the most damaging aspects of what happened over the last uh, eight to 10 years. Even Angela Merkel, who we've come to see as this uh, sort of um, very calm, calculated figure, even she indulged in this. And I remember uh, referring to the Greeks taking long holidays and Germans having to pay for the Greeks. This kind of stuff 
it established what for me was one of the most negative aspects of all this, which was a, sort of a moral approach to what was, a, you know, essentially an economic problem. And immediately the narrative in Germany became about lending money to the profligate, lazy, tax evading Greeks. And that just fueled the reaction in Greece, where it became about the slave drivers, the Germans, and the, you know, their, their worst elements coming out. And of course, don't forget, this was a country that was under Nazi occupation in the Second World War. So the, the revival of all these really negative memories, I think, really blurred the discussion, really blurred uh, people's vision. You know, in the end, if, if you sat down and looked at it, all these stories that started coming out in the media initially about Greeks tax evading, uh, Greeks not working enough, taking pensions earlier, they all had elements of truth, but they were completely blown out of uh, proportion because of the way they were covered and picked up on by uh, politicians. And I think it was very damaging because, you know, once these stereotypes are established and repeated, they linger much longer than the economic crisis does. And I think, you know, the damage to the image of Greece and the Greeks will take decades to restore. One of the things I found interesting watching the crisis evolve from afar is that there was a lot of sympathy for Greece from the left across Europe. And actually, I think the behavior of the Troika and particularly the European Commission and uh, the uh, European Central Bank, it kind of damaged sentiment for Europe across much of the left in places like France and Britain. Do you think there's any way that Greece can start to move on? The relationship between Greece and Europe can get better? I think moving on now, there is an opportunity to start rebuilding that relationship. And I would look to the example of Portugal, for instance, which came out of its uh, bailout, has leftist uh, coalition in power, has been able to grow its economy, has it's back on track. The risk in Greece's case is that because the, the crisis here was much deeper, it will take much longer for all these wounds and scars to heal. And the other problem is that Greece remains under what's called enhanced surveillance from the European creditors, which means that they are still going to be coming here every quarter checking on the economy it has to produce a 3.5% primary surplus this year and all the way up to 2022. And then after that, has to produce a primary surplus of around 2% all the way up to 2060. What happens if it doesn't do that? Well, if it isn't producing a primary surplus, it won't be in the position where it can repay its debt. So, you know, the, the logical conclusion then is that it needs to be bailed out again or it needs to default, which would then open up the whole uh, Grexit debate. Great. <laughs> just, just in case you didn't have enough of it over the last eight years. The only way you can change this dynamic, whereby Greece is essentially almost on life support, is either the economy is going to grow much faster than you expect, and over the medium to long term, the projection is for a growth rate of around one, one and a half percent. And in order to turn that around, you need massive levels of investment. Or at some point in the coming years, the Eurozone is going to have to sit down again and find a more convincing solution to Greece's debt problem. 
And there you, you come back to the problem we discussed earlier, which is if you've created this narrative about, you know, we're giving taxpayers money to the profligate uh, Greeks, who's going to be in favor of writing off debt uh, to Greece? So we're still in a really complicated situation. There is a little more stability. There is a little more optimism about the future. Manufacturing is up and there are a lot of signs tourism is doing very well, but it's going to be one step at a time over the next decade or so. That was the excellent Nick Malkoutsis. You can follow him on Twitter. He is one of the best people tweeting about uh, all things Greek. He is there at Nick Malkoutsis. Now we are going to call Fabrice, who has apparently, according to Politico's Ryan Heath, the best hair in Brussels. But we're not just going to be speaking to him about his hair. We're going to be speaking to him about why he decided to cycle over 700 kilometers on his few days off. Why? I wanted to find the connecting point between my current life, where I live in northern Spain, in Santander, and the fact that I'm French, and that uh, my roots are to a large extent in the center of France, in a region called Lot, where, uh, among other things, foie gras is being produced. I wanted to find that kind of connection, that bridge. And then one day, stupidly, I realized, well, actually, one thing that connects those two places is the fact that there is the Camino de Compostela, which is one of the oldest paths from different parts of Europe to the uh, northern coast of, of Spain. So I thought, well, actually, it's it's a nice way to connect my the fact that I'm French with the fact that I'm a European living in Spain. And at the same time, as you know, I'm involved uh, with Emmanuel Macron's uh, La République en Marche since uh, a bit before the presidential election last year. I'm mostly involved in the work that En Marche does in uh, Spain because we have an MP elected for French people living in Spain. And I wanted to kind of contribute to La République En Marche in a different way connected to Europe. So that was the perfect way to do it. So what you did was you stopped along the way to chat to people about how they feel about Europe. And as you mentioned, you did this partly as part of Emmanuel Macron's party, which is very pro-European. And Macron himself is very keen to get people feeling uh, positive about Europe and proud of, of being European. He is going about this partly by trying to launch a load of political reforms within Europe. But do you think it's more this kind of grassroots approach that's actually going to get people excited about the idea of Europe? Well, I think my own initiative is, uh, I would say, a pretty modest uh, piece to that much bigger puzzle. But I think where he's right, and he's not the only one to talk about that, is what I sense is there is not enough of an emotional link between us, you citizens, and Europe. It's still too abstract, it's still too confused, and people don't feel, you know, strongly in a positive sense enough to fight for it and so would you would you recommend this route for like all politicians in europe or to find some kind of route like this to meet people and see the world instead of getting stuck in their little bubble of politics exactly because you know i'm i'm like everybody i read uh, opinion polls i read uh uh, the elite newspapers. And as you say, this creates sometimes a sense of being a bit trapped in a bubble. 
And so I would really recommend everybody in one way or another to connect with what are people really thinking about how they're looking at things. What I was really surprised is people do really care about Europe. I didn't sense this kind of traditional French Euroscepticism. They have a pretty advanced thinking about what they expect from Europe. But there is also quite high level of disappointment about uh, what Europe has delivered so far and also what national governments have delivered or, or failed to deliver. So there is a pretty pretty clear view among at least the, the, I would say, two dozen people I could meet on the path. And they have opinions. So, you know, get beyond the opinion polls and the commentary pages and go and meet people, definitely. What was the most memorable conversation that you have? Was there one particular conversation that will stay with you after this trip? Uh, It was after having done the first few hours uh, on my own on the bicycle, having left my my family. I was feeling, you know, a bit kind of melancholic because it was a a long trip, a hard trip. Uh, I was wondering... Why do I do that? You know, I'm a bit crazy and I left my, you know, our children, my wife behind me. So I felt a bit sad. And then I stopped because it was really hot to just swim in a river. And then when I was getting dressed again, I met this couple that was coming from Grenoble. And we had like half an hour of super interesting discussion about uh, their lives, about how they see Europe, that they were going to retire uh, within this year, that they were worried about the fact that Europe was too high-tech and too focused on the future and not enough on manual jobs that still matter in our economies. So it was a really lively, broad-ranging discussion, and it really stayed with me. And it then really motivated me for the remaining 650 kilometers. Uh, <laughs> so nice to think about you thinking of this sweet old couple as you're cycling along and kilometer 639 exactly did you have to like jump over a barrier to actually like make yourself start conversations with strangers or are you someone who it comes really easy to just talking to someone you don't know the funny thing you always need a way to interest people and my bicycle was most of the time the thing that interested people because it's a nice bicycle and i had a shell painted by my kids uh, with the French, Spanish, and European flag. So actually that couple kind of started looking at that, uh, and that's how the conversation started. Was there any difference between the kind of opinions you were getting from people on the French side of the border and what people were saying on the Spanish side? Well, first, there's a very big difference being a cyclist in France and being a cyclist in Spain. Okay. (laughs) I can tell you. So the cars are much more, I would say, a bit bit tough uh, with cyclists in Spain. But joke about, in Spain, the preoccupations are much more local because first, it's a much more regional country where regions are quite strong. It's a very decentralized country contrary to France. And the second thing is Europe is very broadly uh, supported in Spain, much more than France. And you can really feel that nobody is really putting into question the future of Europe. What they are more putting into question and where I, I talk more, much more with Spanish people is the future of their country. That's partly to a large extent because of Catalonia, uh, which is still very unresolved. And people have really worried about that. So in a way, Europe is more in the background. And what's in the foreground for the Spaniards is 
their own country, their own constitution, uh, the future of the current government. So you went cycling for 700 kilometers. And meanwhile, your wife stayed at home looking after your many children. I I believe you have five. Is that right? Who do you think had the biggest challenge, (laughs) you or your wife? Uh, That's a good question. I think we both. uh, So that's why we're pretty happy to see each other at the end of that journey. But, you know, she's a very strong, independent woman. She's used to handle uh, our tribe. But actually, I'm going to finish the Camino uh, next year because I could not finish it. As you know, I stopped in Santadere, where I live. But there's still the Santadere-Santiago part, which is, I think, something like 500 kilometers. And I'm going to do it with our older son next year with the same idea of, of talking to people and meeting people and so on. Fabrice, I can't believe you didn't do all 1,200 kilometers in one go. That's so lazy. I know. It's pretty awful. I, I feel pretty bad every day. Uh, the, the simple truth, actually, is that I did not have enough vacations. <laughs> After a while, you really get into it. I was cycling between 9 and 10 hours a day. Which, you know, if you were telling me that a month ago, I would think absolutely no way. You know, I would have not had the problem doing it for two more weeks. My wife, maybe, uh, and my employer, for sure. (laughs) Um, I actually had another question about your wife. Is she Spanish, your wife, or are you both French? Yes. She's Spanish. Yes, she's from Santander. Is that a big part of your Europeanness? do you think? I mean, I wonder, Dominic is in a multinational relationship and I, I sometimes wonder if it uh, how big a factor is it is in making people feel European yes I would say not just my wife but the kids they are speaking currently uh, two languages are all learning a third language so it's a totally different generation, much more European from the very start than ours. Um, I have one final question for you, which is uh, I saw on Ryan Heath's email, the political email, that apparently you have the most famous hair in Brussels. And I want to know how your hair coped with sitting under a bicycle helmet for so many days on end. Was it OK? Yes, it was OK. It was just a, a joke. Apparently, Ryan thinks I'm, I'm, uh, I have the most incredible hair in, in the Brussels bubble. But what matters is really that your hair holds uh, when you are on the ground meeting people and it was fine. But it was tough. So are you and me going to do this trip then? Take to our wheels across Europe? No, definitely not. Oh. We're doing enough for Europe by making this podcast. I'd be interested to see like how long we could do it without driving each other insane. Could I admit something stupid, which I just find it really difficult not to think that cycling from France to Spain is easier than Spain to France because obviously France to Spain is downwards on the map. (laughs) So I always just think, oh yeah, that route would be easy. That is incredibly stupid. And I think you should move on swiftly. Okay, happy ending. There was a great story this week from Berlin. The city's transport body has decided to start playing atonal music in the hope that it will make the stations less palatable places for drug users to hang out. 
This news was rather awkwardly timed in that it came out the same week as the Berlin Atonal Music Festival. <laughs> Great advert. Um, yeah, so there was lots of sympathy on Twitter from people feeling sad for the organisers and performers and the suggestions that Atonal Music sounds so horrible that they can't stay there any longer. That's sad, isn't it? I mean, I'm kind of with them. Well, I don't know. I'm in two minds. A part of me thinks that makes complete sense. The other part of me thinks the only mood in which I would want to listen to atonal music is if I'd taken a ton of drugs. Well, yes, I understand where you're coming from, but I don't think we should feel sorry for the atonal music festival at all. In fact, neither does their organiser, Lawrence Van Oswald. He is thrilled. (laughs) He was interviewed by the BBC and he said that he was so interested that Deutsche Bahn had made this decision in Berlin, a city that for so long has been at the forefront of experimental music. He also thinks that perhaps it will attract different types of people to hang out in the station and that it will become a bit of a spectacle. Um, And he points out that while some atonal may be difficult to listen to, some of it is actually really nice to listen to. So I was just really happy to see him spin it in this really positive way. (laughs) And what is certain is that if this goes ahead, so many more people are going to be exposed to this rather niche music. So good news. Happy ending for Berlin Atonal Music Festival. You lucky Berliners. I love the idea of German stations getting filled with really pretentious people wearing black roll necks, just kind of standing there going, hmm, yes, this is this is very good. Very good. Well, I'm going to be in Berlin from next weekend for two months, so I will be reporting back from the stations in my black roll neck. Thank you for listening to us wittering on about Europe for another week. You can find us on Twitter, at EuropeansPod, where we've been tweeting up a storm this week, haven't we? We've been doing very well. Our Instagram, EuropeansPodcast, or send us an email, EuropeansPodcast at gmail.com. As usual, thank you very much to our one-man jingle factory, Jim Barn, for making us our beautiful atonal music no his music is tonal melodious and beautiful and uh, thank you very much to our guests nick malkoutsis of macropolis and fabrice portier with the lovely hair and wheels we want to play you out this week with something a little bit different it's 50 years since the prague spring when soviet tanks rolled into czechoslovakia and crushed a democratic uprising and there's been a lot of reflecting this week in czechia and in slovakia over what people went through and where we are half a century later so we just wanted to toast everyone that fought for freedom half a century ago and give a shout out as well to great 60s pop music So we're going to play you out with Prayer for Marta, which is the kind of big anthem of the era. We will let the dulcet tones of Marta Kubishova ring you out. We'll see you next week. Yes, us. Bye. (laughs) 